and we are recording on Saturday, April 29th, 2023 at 311 p.m. Eastern time. Guys, if you want to support the podcast, click the little red button. That's locals or go to the description, buy the merch. Those are all my own graphic designs. Support the podcast. We are here with Mr. Lee Slusher. Mr. Slusher, please introduce yourself, sir. Hey, I'm Lee. I've spent uh, about the past 25 years working in intelligence and geopolitical risk. I started out with uh, the U.S. Army. It was what's called a cryptologic linguist, so I had to study foreign languages and cryptography, and then I worked in signals intelligence. Uh, when I got out of the Army, I did intelligence work for about another 10 years, some of it directly for the intelligence community and the rest of it for uh, an Army organization called the Asymmetric Warfare Group. And then after that, I spent about nearly seven years working on contract with the uh, Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab as a national security analyst. And now I have my own firm, uh, BT Consulting. And all along the way, I've got to do uh, some pretty interesting things. So I got to, to travel a lot, um, got to study three different languages at the Defense Language Institute. I've been, I did four deployments to Afghanistan and one to Iraq. I've worked in Taiwan, Ukraine, all over NATO, uh, NATO primarily in Europe. So lot, lots of interesting things along the way. You ever read any uh, James Bamford? Uh, not that I recall. Uh, Shadow Factory, the ultra secret post 9-11 NSA. Uh, no, no, definitely. Uh, he's, he's got some great histories with the CIA, or not the CIA, the NSA, and um, even going all the way back to, I think it was called the Black Vault in World hmm. War One, not even World War Two, World War One, like telegram companies and stuff. It's a great book. Um, yeah, all that stuff's black magic to me, cryptology, and cra- I, it goes way over my head. Um, well, I started out in the kind of tail end of what was still Cold War technology, even yeah. though where it was over yeah. all of the computer networking operations that have since consumed the place or they came after me so yeah I, I can't claim any knowledge there yeah there's kind of an inertia with the like the national security military apparatus there's yeah, a momentum like we're ready for the cold war in 2000 and then in, now in 2020 we're probably ready for like an iraq invasion <laughs> there's kind oh, of sure. yeah. yeah the army decided in uh nearly a decade, well, not quite a decade after the end of the Cold War, that I should be a Russian linguist first. Ah, As soon as I finished the training, they said, well, we need about half the number of you that we have now. Maybe go study some other things. So I just kind of kept doing that until I decided that maybe the army wasn't the place where I was going to find a home. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe in 2040, we'll, uh, we'll be ready to, uh, start training people to, to support Ukraine. Um, Obviously, I love the United States. I wouldn't have the flag behind me if I didn't. Um, so for Taiwan, how, what are we looking at for this year in your crystal ball in this year, really the next 12 months and kind of a, a sub question, has NATO and the U.S.'s response to an aid to Ukraine, do you think that's going to have an effect on how China looks at Taiwan? Or are they looking at Ooh, we don't want we don't want kind of Russian sanctions part two. I'll start with the second one because it's how I would begin answering the first. <laughs> that is, uh, our aid aid to Ukraine absolutely has compromised our ability. It's restricted our ability to act in other ways. Mm. Um, I, I'm keeping this running log of, of press articles that admit. You know, our defense industry doesn't have the machine tools or the surge capacity, or there was just another article released today from the Wall Street Journal. We can't even keep up in the production of 155 howitzer shells. So the it's 
our, our leaders have taken us to a place our defense industrial base cannot support. And we're already there and we're already overextended. We can't even continue to fund or uh, equip the proxy war in Ukraine, much less deal with uh, another crisis. And I think that it, it should limit what our leaders commit us to do. Uh, but thus far, there hasn't been a whole lot of restraint. So I have no real faith that it would. But if, if you're talking very near term, um, well, I'll, I'll explain a little bit about what I did in Taiwan and, and my responses based on that experience. So most of my career was based on uh, focused on the former Soviet Union and the former Yugoslavia, and then came 9-11. And I had this uh, quite long detour into Afghanistan and elsewhere, uh, kind of South Asia and the Middle East. And then uh, after about eight years of that or so, I got back on uh, an Eastern European track. Mm -hmm. And so when Russia uh, seized and annexed uh, Crimea in 2014, mm -hmm. I was doing a lot of the work for the Defense Department that said, like, how did that happen? Because the West was seemingly caught by surprise. They shouldn't have been, or we shouldn't have been, but there was a surprise. And so there were a lot of people asking, well, how did this happen? And most of the old Sovietologists had already retired or passed away. There weren't that many people with experience and language skills. And so I was kind of in the prime place, like sort of fresh out of going to the desert, but still having uh, that, that background. And so I did a lot of this work, like here's how Russia actually took Crimea. It wasn't all little green men or, you know, as we tell ourselves, there was a massive uh, conventional component and overmatch and all the things that we used to forget about doing these wars of choice and, uh, and nation building. And some of that work that I had done about Crimea made its way to US Special Operations Command Pacific. And some people there were working with Taiwan. And of course, at the time, shortly in, in 2014, when the Russians took uh, Crimea, a lot of people immediately turned their attention to uh, Taiwan and to say, you know, could China affect a sort of swift, more or less bloodless takeover of the island? Because all the attention had been focused on uh, this amphibious and, and missileless and airborne assault and, you know, like a, a full on military assault on the island. So this prompted a, a program that uh, I was basically like the lead analytical architect of for about three years, kind of mid to late 2000s helping Taiwan revamp its defense planning, not necessarily on that, uh, you know, defend the beaches against the incoming amphibious uh, vehicles, but what can we do to make Taiwan a harder target, maybe add some more deterrence. And the important thing to remember here is the US policy was, and I think still officially is, strategic ambiguity. Meaning we don't say that we're coming to Taiwan's aid and we don't say that we're not coming to Taiwan's aid. Now, the only thing that's complicated that recently is Biden publicly saying we'll defend Taiwan <laughs> and then having, uh, you know, his subordinates come back and, you know, walk it back later. But um, there, I always think about these things on a spectrum. So way out here on one end, the U.S. could, notionally, a notional spectrum, the U.S. could say, uh, not, not our interest. We're disengaging, uh, in which case peaceful eventual reunification with China would almost certainly happen. Because that is China's goal. They, they will attack if they have to, but they certainly don't want to. They don't want to destroy Taiwan. They just want this sort of peaceful, eventual reunification. But it might not be so peaceful if we kind of push the issue. So out of here on the one end, we could say, uh, we're out of this game. Taiwan isn't in our interest. Uh, you know, we're, we're done. Here on the other end, we could say, not only will we defend Taiwan, 
but we'll do so at the expense of an all-out war with China, right? And somewhere in the middle, you've got this strategic ambiguity that, that worked for decades, whereby we just wouldn't commit to one or another. We have um, we used to recognize Taiwan as the official China, but we got away from that policy in the 70s when we chose to recognize uh, the mainland, the People's Republic of China, as part of our bid against the Soviets. So they didn't get too close to the Soviets. So basically we rescinded our official recognition, recognition of Taiwan as the one China and transferred it to Beijing. And shortly thereafter, there's a law, and this is important to remember, it's a law. The Taiwan Relations Act governs how we interact with Taiwan, even though we don't recognize them formally as a country. And one thing that law mandates is security cooperation. So some degree of mill to mill, of military to military or weapon sales, some degree of that is actually prescribed by law. Uh, it, it's not all that prescriptive and what it has to be, it can be more, it can be less, but the relationship we have with Taiwan does legally require um, security cooperation at present. So when you say what's going forward, well, the important thing to consider is what has changed. Strategic ambiguity was the order of the day for uh, many decades. And in that time, a lot of things changed. So earlier on, I mean, in the 70s, perhaps into the 80s and beyond, Taiwan actually had a strong military advantage, right? China was still, hadn't come anywhere near its current level of development that has allowed its, the, the development still of a much more capable military. Back then, Taiwan had the edge, hands down. We recognized them, they had the edge. And even for a while after we revoked our recognition, they still had the edge. Well, lots of things have changed now, of course. China came into the World Trade Organization. We more or less made it the world's factory. It became very wealthy. It has a large military. Um, I still think China's view is peaceful, but eventual reunification. So there are, there are a lot of important differences between Taiwan and Ukraine, but there are some important parallels that I'll, I'll bring up repeatedly in the conversation. And one is, Taiwan is not an enemy of China. You know, China sees it, Taiwan as, and historically it has been, you know, part of uh, the kingdom. So if you go to Taiwan and you look at the license plates on the vehicles, they read Republic of China, Taiwan province. So oh. we call it Taiwan, but its official name is the Republic of China. And then across the strait, there's the People's Republic of China, which is what, you know, the mainland, what we call China. But it's interesting to note some of the mindset differences here. If you're in Taipei or you're anywhere else on the island, on Taiwan, Formosa, the vehicle license plates are Republic of China, Taiwan province, which indicates that there's more than one province of China, right? That they are indeed the, the correct China. So recently, in recent decades, if you just look at the domestic politics of Taiwan, it kind of goes back and forth. There are factions that are more in favor of uh, of leaning toward China, of having a more conciliatory or perhaps even uh, attitude toward China or perhaps even joining altogether. There's another election coming up, I think it's next year. Um, and we could have a party that comes in and says, no, we don't, we don't want any of this madness. We're gonna move toward uh, reunification or further integration. Now, we have to understand that since China sort of became wealthy as a product of being, uh, as a function of becoming the, the world's factory, a lot of other things have changed here. Um, the deep, there are very deep ties between, not, not just cultural and linguistic and historical between the island, there are deep business ties. There are, you know, 
the flights, if I don't know if this is still the case, but when I was working Taiwan, the greatest number of flights from to and from Taiwan were from the mainland, right? People go back and forth. There are uh, strong business ties, familial ties. I went to the, I forget the name, but there's a big museum in Taipei, which has when Chiang Kai-shek and his people fled China and went over to Taiwan, they actually took a lot of the main historical artifacts because they saw themselves as sort of the rightful uh, government of, of China. And so mainland Chinese flock over there to look at all of the same, so the, the same cultural artifacts. I mean, so there's, there's some shared history there. Well, it's mostly shared histories, but I mean, so when we look at it, uh, as Westerners or particularly in the past year or two, it's almost like we're playing a game of risk. Like it's, it's pretty yeah. preposterous. Like we're, the U S says, uh, our government says, well, we're a Pacific power because of Hawaii and Alaska and Guam and the West coast. Well, sure. We are a Pacific power, but we're not really an East Asian power. Um, we have a lot of interest in East Asia, a lot of influence, but that's not where our power resides yet. We're behaving as if, that is the case. So going forward, I think, well, my personal view is the best thing that could happen is nothing because anything other than nothing is likely to go in a bad direction. So when we talked about earlier about the, the munitions and the US not, um, about basically running our cupboards bare to, to pour our arms into this uh, Ukraine war, what we have to remember is we have no capacity beyond what defense industrial capacity beyond that which we're already exhausting. None. That needs to be made perfectly clear to everyone. You know, when we industrial scale war requires industrial scale defense production. And the only way to do that in the US is essentially to put the whole country on a war footing, to use the Defense Production Act to essentially commandeer and reorient civilian industrial production to that, to wartime production. And we don't even have the factory, like the number of factories that we once had that could potentially do that. And even if we did, there's a huge time lag between uh, be getting that process started and being having enough to even begin some other large offensive, much less sustained one. It's a huge problem that doesn't get enough attention. And yet we keep running around writing all of these checks that we really just can't cash, proverbial checks. You know, oh, we can. We have leaders saying that not only can we continue Ukraine, that if necessary, we could fight Russia and we could fight China simultaneously. This is all nonsense. It's utter nonsense. We, I mean, it's a simple issue of of uh, kind of math at, at some point. You can't spin these productions like it's not. It's not an overnight process. Where it's not just that we don't have the factories that we used to have, or that we have to reorient them. We don't have a lot of the machine tools. We don't have a lot of the know-how. Manufacturing know-how is like any other. It goes away if it's not used. So we're tremendously behind the eight ball there. And yet we decide that now we have to deter China. Um, it, it's extraordinarily problematic. And I think the, the best thing that could happen is, is, is nothing. Is to, uh, it, and, and let's not forget, like I mentioned earlier, there are plenty of people, the people of Taiwan don't want a war. And there are plenty of them who would be amenable to some kind of reunification. There are many who were opposed. I'm not skipping over, I'm not ignoring their view. But we talk about it uh, back here, like we're moving you know, pieces around on a board and uh, most of it's just preposterous. Like we don't even have the other pieces we would need to put on the board. We don't even have a place where we could go to, to purchase or manufacture those pieces. 
to put them on the board. It's really absurd, uh, but we keep writing those checks. We keep making those promises. So I'll, I'll pause there. No, no, it was great. No, no, it was it was, it was great. I, I I love it when the guest talks. It's it. I'm not being sarcastic. I genuinely love it. It, it I, I love getting lost in. I know it's good if I forget I'm doing a podcast and I'm just listening, and then you know, all of a sudden I'm like, oh shit, I'm doing a podcast. Um, I wonder almost, and this isn't something I agree with or condone, but just entertaining it as an as an idea. Um, I almost wonder if that's part of the Biden administration move, is to deplete our proverbial cupboards on ukraine it's sort of a china now takes it and we go listen we couldn't have even so as opposed to weakness right because you don't want a global war escalating you go you you know you go we supported ukraine like what do you guys want we can only defend so many free nations and it's sort of like a i'm not looking at you taiwan you know i'm not saying go take it but i am leaving and i'm turning off the security cameras like i hope you don't take the candy you're kind of saying, go take it. It's kind of a, I'm, again, I'm not necessarily for that, but in terms of politically, that would be a savvy move. It would be. I just don't think they're that savvy. No, the- no, no, I do I. I'm just, <laughs> I, don't, I believe about five of the, five percent of the things i say out loud on this podcast i always just throw out ideas and just an interesting idea and and it's related to sort of you know a lot of people have been looking at everything that's gone wrong and gotten worse in recent years and said is this on purpose surely surely they can't be doing this you know accidentally well i i don't know but i don't blame anyone for asking that question well that that is my personal belief, and I, I try not to interject my my own opinions on. Oh, I do a lot on this podcast, but I'm trying to get better about hearing out what the guest has to say. But no, I mean personally, I always think, well, how would you take on a you know a multi trillion dollar defense industrial complex separated by two oceans with two mountain ranges and an extensive nuclear bunker system? Well, the only way you would ever be able to take that down is not tank for tank or bullet for bullet. What you would do is demolish it from the inside legally like selling off the strategic oil reserve emptying out all your munitions destroying the border and destroying the dollar that's my own personal tinfoil hat how else would you do it if you wanted to do it sure how else i'm never going to beat tom brady in a football game i'm never going to beat lebron james i'm a 5'8 white guy it ain't happening but i could probably wrangle together some investors get them to buy the team i take over the team and then i let go of lebron that's how I beat them. Yeah, I don't know. Um, it's a big thing to swallow because now that implies that, you know, oh, wow. Is there, you know, is there a threat to our very republic from within the white? And I have to be very careful about that because I just spent four years making fun of people thinking for thinking Trump was a Manchurian candidate. I can't now turn around and say, but Biden is. I got to be got to be aware of my own, I guess, contradictions and hypocrisy. I I, I like I said I don't fault anyone for thinking they're intentionally running the ship aground because sure. they are indeed like- they are indeed running it aground. Um, but I really don't think I, I my general thesis and I'm writing about this in several uh, different um, articles. But I think we're basically still led by uh, the architects and the inheritors of the architect of a failed worldview, and there's this very insular class. Uh, that's been at the helm and they're just they I don't they are quite intelligent they realize the world is changing and I think they they have to kind of if they don't sink in and kind of keep hold of what they have then everything is gone Mm. whole 
whether it's uh, the neocon kind of foreign policy or the neoliberal economic policy, uh, those things aren't doing particularly well. They continue to kind of like dig our grave deeper, um, but that's what the establishment is built on. I mean, not just the people in charge, but that's what, th those are the prevailing attitudes. So is it, is it possible that is it possible that we're kind of going on this this momentum of post World War II? You know, it's again not only are we separated by two oceans, and but the rest of the world was quite literally destroyed. Not economically. I mean, the factories were piles of ashes. You know, then the Bretton Woods Conference, the, us being the reserve dollar, we've got this massive military machine. We scale it right up for Korea, right up for Vietnam. I mean, we we have been living in a an unconventional, but an empire nonetheless, for a long time. I mean, there's a there's a reason why we run the world the way we do and live the way we do. But it's now been what I mean. We're ended forty five, coming up on eighty years. It might... that's more how I think about it. There are d different you know stages of history, and in some of them, these new structures get built and then they kind of decay over time. And what we're seeing is not, I guess more broadly, it's sort of the end of the era, of the era that was constructed after World War II, but there's a separate or a mini era in there after the collapse of uh, the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. Mm. And I've, I've written, I've started a series about this, basically focusing on the Cold War ended, what should we do, we as the collective West, or we as NATO? And you know, any, we, we all know what actually happened with expansion and with militarism, but mainly it was rooted in this idea that we, the US are the, the indispensable country and yeah. that you know, we, by intervening, we actually can make- a Shining things. city on the hill. Yeah. Right, all of that. And I think things uh, kind of started that way and that faction um, has been in charge ever since. Right. I mean, those are the people who are in charge and then who go teach at the, the prominent universities. They're really they're just we're, we're another generation into it. You know, we're about 30 years along into that sort of post, uh, well, a little more than that, into that post Cold War world. But the people at the helm are still playing by the old rules and they see that it's falling apart. And so they kind of have to go all in. I mean, what's. Mm. They, well, they don't have to, but if they want to hold on to the things they've built and if they still believe in that worldview that I think is out of date and only had a limited run in it to begin with, I think they're holding on for dear life because whatever comes next probably won't involve them. So let's let's walk that out. You're in you're in charge. You're in you're I always just imagine it's kind of like Dr. Strangelove. There's the war room like somewhere under somewhere under NORAD. You're in there and you're, you know, 12 guys in a room, whatever. Um, but you go, we are, I mean, we're, we're a war economy. We have and not entirely, obviously that's a, that's a generalization, but we, we produce a lot of weapons. We're, we're good at that. That's one thing we do great is we get stealth bombers. The end of the cold war was kind of, kind of bad for business. Do we want to revamp the whole, cause we're, so we're living in this cold, let's just, again, theoretically, we're living in this cold war mindset. We've, we're the hegemon, we're the great indispensable city on the hill, liberty, democracy, all that good stuff. And we see that that's waning. Instead of, and this isn't, I'm not condoning this, but it's just kind of, instead of revamping it and going, how do we adapt? What if you just started another Cold War? Well, let me let me challenge a couple of things. Sure. Um, 
I don't think business has gotten worse for them since the end of the Cold War. Okay. Look at defense spending it, it, on the U.S. side. Now, of course, in Europe, they've nearly ceased uh, spending at all because we provide their, for their security. But on the U.S. side, the defense budget has not gone down. NATO has expanded, which means we have an ever greater number of protectorates. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we were at war for nearly 20 years. 20 years. And Iraq. And now shortly thereafter, we, <laughs> we, we went sober for six months and said, screw it. Yeah. Just look at defense spending. Now, we aren't doing the things that we used to do. Those things are different. We used to fund large standing armies. Uh, frequently involving conscripts. We had large ammunition stockpiles, big formations of armored vehicles. We had redundancy in our system such that we could surge. We could surge people. We could surge production. All of that stuff is gone, but the budget didn't go down. Of course not. It just went elsewhere. And I think what people, I understand completely when people from the outside look at it and think, you know, it's this behemoth, it's this Leviathan. Surely they have you know, something there we don't know about that makes it all worth it. It's, and that's simply not the case. It's mainly just a jobs program. It's mm-hmm. a massive jobs program. And I'm not specifically referring or even mostly referring to people in uniform. It's not. Uh, it's this large civil service. It's the contractors. People like to think, oh, it's all profit. The profit margin in defense contract, and people aren't going to like to hear this. The profit margin is actually not that great. It's usually in the high single digits. Really? That, profit. But the stock prices, of course, uh, can tell a different story. And they employ tremendous numbers of people, largely in Maryland and Virginia and, and you know, the capital area in general, but in, in many other places. This Congress, we, I'm sure you know the, the term military industrial complex came from Eisenhower's uh-huh. right, farewell address, but it was initially in the earlier draft, the military congressional, uh, it wasn't uh-huh. the military military congressional industrial complex or i might have the, diff- the order there reversed yeah. there was a reference to congress that he removed because he didn't want to be adversarial but the idea that it's when we when we think of the military industrial complex it's like well it's these generals and it's lockheed we're leaving out the people who have the statutory authority to to endorse all the improve all the spending and of course they're spreading it all over the place so Yes, we don't have a large standing army. We do have something. Now, there's a second part to this. We're, we're still spending. So it's not that we've stopped spending and, and we're spending ever, ever more. Um, Military industrial congressional. Yeah, yeah. So it's. Uh, Military industrial congressional. The sales haven't gone down. Business is still booming since the Cold War. So we don't necessarily need another Cold War. Profit margins low. Oh, yeah. So. The other, the other thing is we, for a long time, um, we had a lock on some really, we basically had a monopoly on a handful of military capabilities that were generally decisive, right? Mm-hmm. You can lump them all together in different categories. Like one is precision. We mm-hmm. could strike things with great precision when others couldn't. For a long time, we, we owned the night. Yeah. We, we could strike things with precision at night. We could move and fight at night, shoot, move, and communicate all in the dark better than anyone else. A lot of those things are changing. Um, we no longer have that monopoly. So if, if the goal is to start a new Cold War, to, well, I, I don't think that's the goal, but uh, it, we need to recognize that a lot of the capabilities that we once had are now uh, present elsewhere and sometimes even better. 
whether it's electronic warfare, precision guided munitions. Uh, if we look at the proliferation, uh, one of my contracts is uh, I do these uh, social media scrapes about worldwide drone activity. And um, so I've been doing this, I think, weekly for about four years. And I don't do the analysis. I just send off the data. But by doing by, by doing the data scrapes, I get to see these trends over time. And it is tremendous. I mean, I when I was working for the Army's asymmetric warfare group in kind of the mid-2000s, we started to see drones. And of course, they were these kind of clunky quadcopters that people were sort of just jerry-rigging with, with a grenade or something like that. The proliferation of high-end, not only drones, but loitering munitions, right? Like these kamikaze drones that don't even necessarily have to be programmed. They can just be sent up and they know that they, the types of targets they're looking for and they autonomously strike them and autonomously deconflict. I mean, it's, it's more than that. Like that technology is everywhere. Turkey has been a real leader. They have some of their drones that now have precision guided munitions that fire from the drone. Uh, Turkey just recently built an aircraft carrier for drones. Uh, yeah, so I mean, we we basically have fly flying killer robots, as I used to think of them, and now we have an aircraft carrier. Now, aircraft carriers are obsolete against anybody who has modern missile technology. Yeah, but not and it's not the case that Turkey's likely to to send their little drone aircraft carrier, you know, off the coast of China or something where it would get sunk. So, seeing the proliferation of these technologies and of important capabilities like precision, uh, it really changes things. Uh, one of the last things I did uh, for the government before becoming an independent consultant was a study of the 2020 Nagorno-Karabakh war, so between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And in the US, this got almost no coverage, but it was uh, tremendously important for, for military matters because in all of these little wars in which there's some, uh, kind of like larger, wealthier patron country helping the combatant, we're seeing a lot of evolution of the sort that, that you know, we now think of as having occurred in the Spanish Civil War immediately before World War II, you know, where, where Nazis perfected dive bombing and all sorts of other things. Yeah, the Nagorno-Karabakh War had Turkey uh, taking a lot of its drone expertise and its uh, loitering munition expertise and basically employing it with, in, in some cases, directly for Azerbaijan. And they were able to upend a status quo that it had, lift, had uh, existed for several decades. It used to be the Armenians. There's, there's basically, there's a, well, I, we don't have time for the whole history lesson, but you know, you bet Armenians and Azerbaijanis were Aziris fighting over this territory. And for most of the time since the nineties, the Armenians had the upper hand. They had the numbers, they had the terrain, the high ground, and there'd be periodic fighting, but there wouldn't be a sufficient change. Well, Turkey came in and employed this technology so effectively that they completely upended a decades old status quo that had relied on infantry and artillery all being in the right places. So as we look forward, uh, it's just a totally different world. And we continue to fund this massive defense complex, much of which, which goes into a handful of high-end, extraordinarily expensive weapons programs, and the rest of which goes to, to just this bewildering array of defense agencies. Uh, it's, it really is a massive jobs program. So we're not, we have some really good high-end boutique capabilities and we can strike pretty much anywhere on the, on the uh, earth. But in terms of actual, actually slugging it out against 
someone who is similarly or even uh, just a, it, just engaging in high intensity conflict with another army that isn't uh, you know like the, the the Afghans or the Iraqis, we're we're really not in a position to do that. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, if you took like twenty twenty three Delta Force and brought it back to World War Two. Yeah, you could probably go take out the Nazi High Command. You need stealth, night vision. You know, you could probably do that encrypted comms. Yeah, that ain't taking down the entire like. Yeah, that ain't taking down mainland Japan. And no, it's, it's even worse than that. Like the, we've come to focus on those sort of really specialized boutique capabilities, yeah, like special operators, or yeah. Because it's the sexy stuff and yeah. you know, captures our attention. And those guys are superb. I, I'm not uh, saying otherwise. But in this kind of war, the kind of war that really changes lines on maps. It's attrition. You, you, it's not just attrition. It's uh, you need a, an actual force that can fire and maneuver and, and destroy an enemy force. And that means lots of artillery, whether it's tube artillery, rocket artillery. Uh, it means a whole lot of things that we're not really uh, oriented to do right now. And one, one thing that I always found particularly irritating about the Pentagon in general, um, the, a leader would decide that, there, that a change has occurred, right? When Obama was president, he said, oh, well, there's a pivot to Asia. Or when we were winding down in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we'd say, oh, we, you know, we've been involved in this uh, low intensity conflict. And meanwhile, you know, oh, Russia and China have gotten better in these other things. Okay, that's true. But they say, oh, now we're going to focus. And it's really just sort of a nominative change. Like the, the words on the slides will change. Maybe the scenarios at our training centers will change, but there's no substantial change in the actual size or composition of our formations. Uh, we still pretend, uh, we, we still uh, execute policies as if we have that kind of military might, that sort of Gulf War era, you know, military yeah. might that we use, uh, that we don't. So it's, there's a lot of make-believe. There's a lot of, well, we, we've said that we're shifting, we're pivoting to Asia, or we're refocusing on uh, what they call LISCO, large-scale combat operations. Basically what we used to call war, you know, high-intensity warfare, World War II, Korea, World War I, that kind of stuff. But it's really just a change in what people are saying and to some extent into what they're funding. Again, there's we don't even have the defense industrial base to kind of back a lot of that stuff up. So... Yeah, it's. I'm. I'm happy to to not have to go there or <laughs> absolutely hear, hear any of that stuff anymore. It so. could. I wonder if we're just. It's. I wonder if it's just the most uh uneventful outcome. I wonder if we're just going to slowly shift to a multipolar world, and it's not going to be this big. It's not a nine eleven or a Pearl Harbor. It's just kind of a thing where you wake up one day, and you go, yeah. oh, you know, it's like. They wake up one day and it's like, I graduated high school 15 years ago. There's there's never a moment. You go, oh, I'm, I'm kind of in touch with like two or three friends. There's never a moment where you stop talking to your buddies. And it's not necessarily that there was like a bad, there's bad blood. It's just you, you kind of grow up and get married and everyone kind of goes their own ways. And it's one day it just dawns on you. And it's not bad and it's not good. You just go, oh, I'm here. I wonder if we're just slowly turning into multipolar. I, I think it's happening, but not slowly and not 
quite so idly. I think there there are huge parts of the world that actively want to move this along much more quickly. Well, why 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 wouldn't you? If you're not if you're not the hegemon, why wouldn't you want to? So, uh, yeah, I think that effectively is the world in which we live now. Mm. There, there's this meme floating around of the international community. You've probably seen it, and it's basically North America. I mean, well, not excluding Mexico, and then uh, you know Europe and Japan and, and South and uh, Australia, New Zealand. The rest of the map is uh, there, there's no there are no other land masses on the yeah map. yeah there's there's definitely some truth to that um, who knows man it's and then you got to think and this is where the this is the stuff that kind of tickles my mind it's like if we don't have that that asymmetric capability where we don't have a monopoly on NVGs or stealth technology or laser guided JDAMs or whatever. It does kind of make you think, what about, what about like the Tic Tac 2004 off the USS Nimitz, right? You have all those fighter pilots going on podcasts talking about it. What about the gimbal UFO? It does. It's kind of more fun than anything, but you go, why is there? I heard somebody somebody say something. They're like, they're they're releasing all this UFO stuff, and then they go, I don't think they started Space Force. I think they declassified Space Force, just like they declassified the NRO and the NSA. Do I believe in that? Not really. Do I want to believe in it? Hell yeah, it's fun. Not just because I'm American and I want America to keep going. That's definitely a part of it, but it does make you go, what? Wow, how come we've just are they is is it's either intentional that they're destroying the United States from within, or it's like, do they have something up the sleeve? Is there something that they're just I'm with you, I don't necessarily think so, but it's a fun idea to toy with. You go, what? What's really out in Nevada? What's really well, flying around? I don't mean to throw a wet blanket on the space force. But... Oh, don't kill me. You're gonna destroy yeah. my curiosity. It's important to understand what that actually means, right? It's it's not Star Trek or Star Wars. No, it's just they just took the US's they they did try to interrupt. They did in 1947 we when, we sep- yeah. when we separated the the Air Force, the U.S. Army Air Forces into its own thing, the Air Force. It's we're just kind of doing that again. It's now there's like another level above it, literally and and physically. It's it was just I, yeah, and I know what it is, but I want to believe. <laughs> you just threw a wet blanket on my. Belief. I want to believe. I'm, well, I'm a four year old and cryptids and all kinds of other things. You just walked in here and I'm five years old and you said Santa ain't real. Get a job. And I, I understand there's a time for that, but you also got to let me, let me believe, give me a liver, little silver lining. Um, there is, it is, I mean, I know this is just kind of like a tired, unoriginal saying, but it is, and it's always technically true in history, but we are at this weird uncharted territory of, I mean, imagine going back to like world war one was so insane because they were still using horses, but also had tanks. They were using hot air balloons, but also had biplanes. It was a total reimagining of the ability to kill one another. And it kind of feels like we're coming up on that, the edge of that waterfall with, with strong AI, drones, autonomous drones, UCAVs. Mm-hmm. Are we coming up on the next great, almost Cambrian explosion? of warfare where things are going to be happening in 10 years that are as alien to you and I as world war two would be to Lincoln. 
I, I definitely think we're on the precipice of a new era, whether it's a, a Cambrian explosion, I, I don't know. Yeah. But, um, yeah, for, for sure. But the, I think that new era combines old with new. So the, like the sort of combat we're seeing play out in Donbass and everywhere else and Ukraine, uh, I don't think we're quite there where, you know, we burrow underground and it's all autonomous systems fighting above ground. Yeah. I think it's the mixture that we see there um of of this of ai and all of these new uh, emerging and disruptive technologies with the existing force that that's i think that's the the next stage but what's really transformative the missile technology the speeds the ranges the fact that an aircraft carrier isn't what it used to be uh that's the sort of thing that that really uh changes the game yeah and we're we're definitely there i don't, I don't even know that we're on top of it i think we're we're in it yeah there is, I think one of the wildest things I saw was a, a photo from a drone of a guy using a World War I water-cooled Vickers mm-hmm. with a hollow sight on it <laughs> in, in Donbass. And it's like everything about that, the gun to the sight to the picture taken from the drone, all used in concert. And it was like, this is insane. This is some weird you know the steampunk dystopia like what the hell is going on well there's a i was over in ukraine um not too long after the whole crimea affair when the u.s was first starting to uh do security cooperation with the ukrainian military and we got to speak to people who had just come out of donbass and things like that and it was really tremendous to see just this rapid evolution because the Ukrainian military didn't have, we, we could get into this another time because there's a whole lot more to it, but the Ukrainian military didn't have uh, that kind of technology or technological expertise in the force. It had regular citizens just coming forward and designing things for the troops who were being sent to Donbass in like 14 and 15. Um, like I remember this one thing in particular, it was a tablet that they designed just to give to brigade commanders so they could sort of like point and fire with artillery. So there's a lot of melding of old and new. And I think, uh, like you said, the the kind of steampunk reference, I think there's more, there's a whole lot more of that um, before there's something that's unrecognizable. Yeah. You'll have, you'll have the insane technology in the first days of world war three, you'll have the, the Mach 10 fighter jet or whatever, but it will very quickly settle into. You got to kill it. Yeah. Well, it will very quickly settle into stuff that is not affected by EMP stuff that is not, it's going to be old artillery from world war one. It's going to be like a Kalashnikov. It's going to be a shovel. It's, it's going to be what they're going to have three dimensional maps of it in high resolution but it's going to be guys stabbing each other. Yeah. That's the resilience, right? Is you can have, you can have a B 21 Raider and that entire support staff you need for it, or you're just going to have like a mortar tube. Which one's more resilient, which one's more mass producible. Yeah. I think there's a tendency to focus on, uh, I, I can't remember who wrote this, but there's a tendency to focus on the, the initial opening days of conflict within the US defense establishment that just plans, plans nonstop, plans for everything that they think might happen. Uh, in fact, it plans too much, like it, it, it falls short on executing a lot of plans. But there's an overemphasis on the early days of a conflict 
without recognizing that unless it's like the Gulf War that where you're just so one-sided that then you get into the other stages to come. Yeah. Yeah. That's where things really start to drag on. Yeah. It's getting psyched for the first three days of the new year. You're like, I got the gym membership. I got the whey protein. Let's get it. It's like, where, where are you? In, where are you in April? Yeah. Where are you in April? Consistency. You only go to the gym. That's why I always tell people, I'm like, go to the gym for 10 minutes. It's better to go consistent. Where are you in August? Where are you? And it's, and we did a great opening day of the war in Afghanistan and Iraq. We went in, just, you know, mapped everything out, took out the power station, special forces. That's all great. Now what do I do with my hands? And we didn't do anything with our hands for 20 years. Well, consider this too. We, we always, just as we tend to focus on the initial days of a conflict, we also tend to focus on a worst case scenario, like EMPs and nuclear weapons and all the rest of it. I think what's probably more likely is a series of restrained wars uh, in which those capabilities are not employed, uh, but all the other stuff below them is. So you'll still end up in these slugfests like we see uh, playing out in Eastern Europe right now, because it, we don't always jump to the you know to global thermonuclear war. Thankfully, yeah, yeah. I mean, we yeah we didn't we didn't nuke Iraq, we didn't right. nuke Afghanistan. Artillery shell and rocket production are going to be relevant yeah. for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Because there is kind of a weird thing is like the production of those weapons, although it does have you know effects on global position or not global uh, posturing, but because you can't use them because it's so unthinkable and they're so unstoppable, and if I use them, they're going to use them. They're kind of off the table. Like you have to have them as deterrence, but they're hopefully off the table. Yeah. Hopefully off the table. But like I uh, to my uh, to my knowledge, I don't like I don't think a single one of the silos out in the Midwest ever opened and aimed at Iraq, maybe 9-11, maybe that evening we aimed a couple, but like, those stayed offline. It was MRAPs. It was snipers. It was it was IED detection. It was language skills. Yes. Having tea with people. Yeah. Uh, I mean, not that any of that made a difference at the end. But, no, not at all. But, but that's, I mean... what we were, that's what we were up to. Um, <sighs> I think absent, uh, you know, something apocalyptic, we're still looking at that kind of conflict. And the, the big thinkers tend to skip over it because it's not a very sexy story Yeah, that the BM-21 is still relevant and still will be, you know? Yeah, no, yeah, you want to you wanna talk about the, the SR-72 going Mach 7. And it's like, no, you kind of just need some belt feds. It's, it's not sexy. You just need some belt feds. You need some concertina wire and some radios. And, like, that's a, yeah, that, that ain't sexy. But... I don't know. I think let's get to, and we got to wrap this one up in a minute. I'd, I'd sure. love to have you on again sometime, man. This was, uh, this was fun. Um, and in the description is your, is your Twitter and website and all that good stuff for everybody to go follow. More important than perhaps the most important thing is who manufactures rockets and artillery and what do I need to invest in? <laughs> well, if you're investing in Raytheon, <laughs> uh, which they're probably the most associated with, uh, with missile technology and things like that. I, I actually don't know who offhand is. I want the low tech manufacturers. I don't want any of this hypersonic. I don't want any, I want the dumb bombs. Who's making the dumb bombs? Who's, who's producing, <laughs> who's producing high explosives. That's what I need. I want the base stuff. I'm afraid I don't know. Damn it. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking like, it's not the, I'm thinking like, like Remington. I'm low, low level. Who's making tubes for belt fed machine guns? I'm not going with the B 21 radar absorbing material. I want, I want the bread and butter of defense. 
which I guess would matter of defense is giving other countries stuff right now. <laughs> yeah. So look at what we've been given to Ukraine, giving to Ukraine. That's uh, those are the stocks that have exploded. Recently. There is something deeply helpful. Continue on the same track. There is something, and obviously none of it's funny. It's death and destruction, but you got to make light. There is something deeply funny about everyone hating Trump for demanding NATO pay their fair share. And Biden's kind of making, this isn't for or against Biden or Trump. I don't care. There is something kind of deeply funny about we're, oh, making, sure. we're making NATO pay, pay their fair share. Like it, It's not not funny. Well, we're we're saying we're making them. We're not actually. Oh, of course. I mean, no, the whole thing's horseshit. Nothing's real. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'll have more uh, more work done on NATO here pretty soon. And I've, I've worked with NATO for many years, so we should we should get into that some other time. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd love to. I'll, I'll I'll email you. Um, let's definitely do another one sooner than later. Um, sure. this is I always describe it to people. The first first time on the podcast is always like an awkward first date, and then you feel each other out. And sometimes they're just like, yeah, we're gonna part ways, never gonna talk again. Sometimes I'm like, we're gonna we're gonna fucking hit it off next time. So. Mr. Lee Slusher, I'd love to have you on here again sometime, man. Thank you for coming on here. Thank you for your time, your patience, and uh, putting up with my rather unconventional interview style, which consists of uh, no preparation and wearing slippers and yelling. Um, it was it was fun. I'd happily talk to you again. Thank oh, you. yeah, man. Thank you for coming on. Guys, please go into the description. Please go follow him on Twitter. Don't make me look like an idiot. He needs to see at least five new followers, and then he'll come back on the show. That's that's my guess. Um, I'll email you the episode. And um, till next time, man. Thank you so much. Yep. Take care. Thank you for watching.